Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about me, Danny Moran. I'm a struggling photographer And one day I come home to find that my model boyfriend, Sam Foster, is in bed with another woman. Also, he has destroyed all my camera equipment. As my life falls apart, I alternate between desires for revenge upon him, sexual promiscuity, and an abandonment of all hope of love. My best friends, Michelle and Carrie, try to set me up on dates. These include one with a freakish (laughs) magician. I read ahead and found it too funny. These include one with a freakish magician, and another with a man who gives me ecstasy, and has a fetish for fish. I attempt to make Sam jealous by taking a director who is reminiscent of Woody Allen to a runway show, but he ends up vomiting on my breasts in front of everyone. Ultimately, I realize I should focus my energy on being with someone who truly loves me, and that turns out to be John, my nerdy but caring best male friend who has been supportive of me throughout this entire ordeal. Uh, actually, sorry, I was actually reading the synopsis from Wikipedia for the 2005 film Dirty Love which was the winner of the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Film uh, that year. This is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Dan Moran, and joining me is my two-timing handsome ex, Sam Foster. This week, Michael Caine takes on possibly his oldest role yet in Paolo Sorrentino's Youth. The film's depiction of two long-term male friends eking out their twilight years, having the same sorts of conversations over and over, filled me with a deep foreboding. We also turn a large round lamp onto Spotlight, as a load of famous character actors and some guy with a big moustache investigate the Catholic Church's institutional cover-up of massive amounts of child abuse. Enjoy watching in-depth investigative journalism while you can, because the secular decline of newspapers means that our children will have no idea what the hell these guys are doing. We also check in with some pretty cool alternative directors, Ben Wheatley and Nicholas Winding Refn. When I say check in, I don't mean we speak to them and see how they are, we just read news stories about them. But if we were speaking to them, I would ask Nicholas Winding Refn why he's working with the guys who wrote Dine of the Day. It's just ridiculous. Idiots. That will leave us just enough time for me to rank every Michael Caine film since 2000 by how old the old man he plays is. In Kingsman he's in a wheelchair, but in Is Anybody There, he's in an old person's home. Who's older? And where does Lord Redbrick from Nomeo and Juliet fit into this? Find out later when I delve into this matter in extraordinary detail. Assuming Katie doesn't cut it from the final edit for being too boring. You wouldn't do that to me, would you, Katie? Don't do that, Katie. Don't do that. Don't do that. He plays a lot of old men, but they're not all the same age. Some are older than others. I was quite old in Harry Pratt. I'm old in Interstellar. And later on, I'm really fucking old. I'm so fucking old. I'm bloody old in Interstellar. 
films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. So, Michael Patrick got in contact with us. Mm-hmm. I think he likes to be called Mick, but on Facebook he's Michael Patrick. Anyway, he got in touch with many reviews. Too many reviews, in fact, Mick. Yeah, I because mean, he'd written in to say that he hadn't seen any good movies, but it turns out he's seen pretty much every film nominated for an Oscar this year. <laughs> so um, A very thorough re- rundown from Mick. Extremely thorough, but a little too thorough maybe for a full blow-by-blow account. True, but let's look at some of his reviews. For example, The Big Short. This is Mick's take. It felt like there's a better film hiding in there. They were just throwing stuff at the screen to see what stuck and didn't follow through with lots of things. The fourth wall breaking particularly. Also, I found the editing really strange and jarring in places. Nevertheless, an enjoyable watch, if a little disappointing. <laughs> I like the cadence you gave his review that's, at the end. That's there. a really good Mick impression. You don't know him as well as I do. If but a little disappointing. Yeah, so he talks. That's sort of true, isn't it? It was a bit of a jumble. I agree, Mick. The big short. You've cut straight to the heart of the matter. On a slightly related note, um, you know Deadpool is coming out mm-hmm. with the fourth wall breaking superhero character. Yes. He's very famous for that. I'm hoping there will be a bit where he breaks three walls and then breaks a fourth wall. That is... I don't know that. That is a fucking... That would be a missed opportunity, would, yeah. don't you think? Because he's like a superhero, so walls could be broken in the movie, I think. Yeah. That'd uh, be sick. Anyway. Oh, no, just... no. Or he breaks three walls and then, like, there's a shot of a wall and he just breaks through it. <laughs> <laughs> he's there. It's like, literally just broke the fourth wall. Uh, Mick also gave his take on Room. He says, The way to split up into two halves is a bit odd. I'd say most people are used to a three or five act structure, so I felt it was a bit oddly paced. Didn't find it as grim as Danny seemed to. Found it quite uplifting. What? Brie Larson was... I, that was me saying what? Not he doesn't. That. He's not astonished by his own views. <laughs> no, not at all. Brie Larson was brilliant, as were the supporting cast. Can't beat a bit of William H. Macy. Found the soundscape strong at times, particularly at the scene around the dinner table. Lots of loud cutlery sounds really put me on edge. Does seem to fall short of being a brilliant film, though. I'm glad he wrote in because it gives me a chance to reappraise Room, mm. which I was a little bit uh, overwhelmed well, with. Well, I was I gonna, it. I was gonna ask you. You seemed just a bit like dispirited <laughs> by the kind of concept of the movie so much that that was a big obstacle. Yes. In addition to your structural complaints. Yeah. What I would say, I think I sort of said this in a sort of roundabout way, is that. I think the film completely succeeds on everything the creative team were trying to set out to do. And it's not, it's a success in that the director and writer and actors have all achieved all their goals and it's the film they wanted to make. But I don't think that film is that good. I feel the same way I feel about a film like Requiem for a Dream, which is like a good film, but I have no desire to see it ever again. Mm. And when I watched it, I was like, that is the most depressing film I've ever seen. And why have you brought this into the world, Darren Ofsky? There's <laughs> 90 minutes of hell for me to just to spread nothing but despair throughout the land. Yeah, don't take drugs. Maybe that's why. It's just say no. Just say no. Mick reviews various other films. I'm just scrolling through here to see if he has any really controversial takes. But he doesn't seem to. The Martian, okay. Hateful, like, great. Bridge of Spies, competent. 
The Revenant, you covered it pretty well. Well, fair enough. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. Brooklyn is uh, Donald Gleason in every fourth film released. Very solid and Mad Max. He says incredible. So uh, thank you very much, Mick. Thanks, Mick. You're a diamond. Extensive rundown. You're the best. Stella Evelyn wrote in to... Well, she actually wrote in a little while ago, but we couldn't fit it in to last week's. She says, hey, film chat amigos. If you could win me over some suggestions for films about obsession, particularly female romantic obsession, that'd be handy. So far, I have Heartbeats by Javier Dolan and In the Mood for Love. Further suggestions, muchos appreciated. She must be learning Spanish. Yes. So she was asking us this because she was doing, she was making a a film, I think. And by the time... I replied, the film shoot was over. So the advice was useless before it had even been given. But I think that's a shame because I gave her some really great suggestions. I went to the, immediately the most obvious films you would think of when you're thinking about films about romantic obsession. First of all, Obsessed, the 2009 Idris Elba film starring him and Beyonce. A fucking masterpiece. <laughs> Have you seen uh, the trailer for Obsessed? Have I? He's like a cool businessman. He's married to Beyonce. Idris Elba's married to Beyonce, and that's pretty cool. He's married to Queen Bey? Yeah, he is. He is King Bey. Yeah. The king. He's put a ring on it. Yes. There's some sort of sexy woman in the office who oh, no. falls in love with him and goes crazy. Oh, dear. It's kind of like Fatal Attraction. And uh, I also recommended Fate, Fatal Attraction, obviously. Take This Waltz. That's quite a bad film that you might want to watch if uh, you're a real completist about these things. Sarah Polly's film. Yeah, with Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen. And Michelle Williams becomes romantically obsessed with some cool guy who pulls a, um, uh, what do you call those things that they're in Leicester Square and uh, those guys, Rickshaw. Rickshaw, yeah. He's like a sexy Rickshaw driver and Seth Rogen is a nice but boring chicken chef. Uh, and she falls in love with a sexy guy and then feels guilty about it. I didn't think it was that great. Obviously, Rob Sest, which we gave out as a prize at our film quiz, the documentary about Robert Pattinson. And another film, which is obviously the greatest of the genre, Tyler Perry's Temptation, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. Any movie that has the phrase Confessions of A in it is just clearly going to be brilliant. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Confessions of a Shopaholic. (laughs) Yeah, well, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind actually is quite good. Yeah. And then Dan Knoll replied to my comment to recommend Onibaba and Possession. Those are probably more grown-up films it's kind of bullshit films for like fancy snooty morons wankers yeah absolutely wankers wankers shouldn't have read it out anyway thanks very (laughs) much for your comments guys thanks guys keep it keep them (laughs) next that applause keep them coming keep them coming please and see you in this section again next week yay Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. So one of the films that we're quite excited to come out soon is Ben Wheatley's High Rise. You've seen this, right? You saw it at the London Film Festival. You thought it was good, right? I'll give you a sneak preview of my review. It's really good. (laughs) <laughs> okay um so i had high expectations and they were met excellent it's a jg ballard adaptation it's got tom hiddleston in it ben wheatley has been a very prolific guy who's churned out a whole bunch of excellent movies recently and he's moving into the big leagues people are giving him more money he directed a couple of episodes of doctor who 
And now he's moving on. He's got tons more projects coming out as well. Like yeah, he's, he's just... already shot a film. What's there's, that? What's it? There's it's... a new film coming out at the end of this year called Free Fire, which is like a sort of high shootout movie, which has got Killian Murphy and uh, Michael Smiley and Charlotte Copley and Brie Larson in it. Sounds fantastic. That's yeah, but great, he's like, it's already cast. done. Already done. I'm past that. I've got to get a new film. <laughs> yeah. It's been two weeks since I've shot something, so he's on to the next one. Exactly. And his next project is going to be a remake of Henri-Georges Clouseau's The Wages of Fear. And his twist is that the leads will be ladies instead of men. Been a popular way to um, change things up recently on the heels of the Ghostbusters remake. Yeah. What's uh, Wages of Fear about, by the way? Wages of Fear. Part? Well, basically, the sort of, you know, one sentence review, uh, synopsis would be it's about a bunch of guys transporting rocket fuel yeah, across, nitroglycerine, nitroglycerine across a sort of perilous journey through the jungle. Yeah, the slightest pebble under the wheels of their trucks will explode the nitro. So it's already a pretty highly strong situation to begin with, but there's all these sort of personal, you know, men under pressure. It's a bit sort of uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre-like. But I think uh, this approach is uh, really interesting because it's a very macho movie about guys, guys, they're truckers, they move stuff. So immediately... Making them women makes that a completely different film. Yeah. So I'm excited. In fact, I would see any remake of a film where they just switch the genders. Yeah, especially one where it's very traditionally masculine roles. Yeah. Where there's no reason why they couldn't just be women. you see that movie? (laughs) 12 Angry Broads? (laughs) That sounds good. That could be a John Apatow film. With Jane Fonda in the Henry Fonda role. (laughs) Actually, no. Bridget Fonda. (laughs) No, wait. Well, both of them. (laughs) Peter Fonda. No, wait. Jane Fonda. So anyway, Ben Wheatley, I'm always excited for his new projects, and this is cool sounding one. Cool. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sounding one, I'm Sykes. In other auteur news, uh, Nicholas Winning Refner, director of Drive, director of Only God Forgives, director of... Valhalla Rising? Yeah, sure. Director Bronson. of a bunch of movies. Yeah, exactly. The uh, Danish director is gearing up for a new film. It's going to be an Asian set thriller, and he is collaborating with Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who are the current writers of the Bond franchise. They have been for like for, I don't know twenty years. Yeah, about six movies worth. Yeah. So since, late since, late Brosnan and all of the, the world's got enough or something. Exactly. Uh, and it's going to be an action-packed spy thriller set in Asia. I mean, based on that, it sounds like Only God Forgives, except with spies. It said on Empire that it was going to star like a tacker turned like violent protagonist or something, which is one of Refn's favorite things. Exa- also, also describes Bond, of course. <laughs> True. Well, people are suggesting that this might be linked to an earlier thing that Refn muted was that he was going to be making a Tokyo-based follow-up to Valhalla Rising, starring Maz Milgelston, and Sounds which is like a sort of you know, but he, like there's a trope in his movies of these sort of stoic men who don't talk a lot and are just sort of avenging angel types yeah kind of a man with no name exactly i think he's currently gearing up to release his eagerly awaited new film called the neon demon which stars Elle fanning keanu reeves and christina hendrix 
which is where Fanning plays an aspiring model who moves to Los Angeles and gets devoured by vapid, image-obsessed women. Yeah, there's a kind of parallel in a way with the Ben Wheatley story because I think he made that movie because he felt felt like his movies were getting too masculine and he wanted to make a film with women in it. But he was worried that he couldn't write female characters or something, so he got a female co-writer and they made this film about, yeah, woman being devoured by LA fashion or something like that. Cool. It's got a very rough and tight. He likes, to, he likes titles that um, are laden with doom um, and uh, the neon demon. You're going to see that movie, right? It sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, this is mixed news because Nicholas Winding Refn is an interesting filmmaker and I'm excited by his new projects. But uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade are shit. They're Pair terrible. <laughs> they're terrible fucking hacks. <laughs> they can't write for shit. Yeah, their scripts have been really bad, haven't they? Yes. Uh, they've all been bad. They've all been bad. I've read a script of theirs yes. that hasn't been made. <laughs> yes? Yes, I wasn't made. I was once interning at this company and they had one of their films, right, in pre-production. Yeah. Right, okay. And it was written by them and I read it and it was terrible. <laughs> well, apparently Refn and these two guys, Wade and Purvis, they sound like, you know, they sound like the writers from that Mitchell and Webb sketch where they're just like <laughs> these total losers <laughs> yeah, didn't do who any don't research. do any research. Yeah. yeah. Wade and Purvis. And uh, they worked together with Refn on a TV series version of Barbarella, apparently, um, which is currently somewhere in the Amazon production line. So we'll wait and see whether maybe that's good because that might come out first. But also Refn tends to make movies with very slim scripts, right? Well, and their great weakness is dialogue. So if there's only a few lines, maybe how much damage can these guys do? Well, apparently he really changed the script for Drive. It was like a bit more of a sort of generic crime movie right. and he was like no less dialogue more staring at stuff yes <laughs> and then <laughs> and that's why he made it that's why it's glory. a total masterpiece yeah, yeah yeah so maybe he'll be like they'll give him a script and they'll just remove all the dialogue and then make it really good I don't know. yeah because like about half their lines are going to be shit so just take them out make the film and then yeah it's probably be pretty good looks like sam's got a film to review he's just getting ready now Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Nah, Sam, I heard you went to the cinema and watched a film with Mark O'Kane. Is that true? It is, Michael, yes. <laughs> and what a pleasure to have you join us for me to review your all film. Right, all right. I went to the Curzone Victoria. I don't know if you've... Have you ever been to the Curzon in Victoria, Danny? No, it sounds snooty. It is. It's probably the poshest cinema I've ever been in. I've also been to the Everyman in Canary Wharf, and that's pretty fucking snooty as well. I think they're running a close race there. But it really felt like the right place to see this film, in which Michael Caine is a retired English composer. He's quite eminent, and he's on holiday to fancy Swiss Alpine Resort with his aging film director buddy Mick, played by Harvey Keitel. Uh, and his daughter and assistant, Lena, played by Rachel Weiss, is also with him. So everything on the screen was ridiculously clean and beautiful and for wealthy people. And so was the seats in the <laughs> cinema that I was in. And the audience kind of looked like extras from the movie. So I was really, it was immersive. It was an immersive yeah. experience, I would say. It's like a D-box. Yeah, so Michael Caine basically spends his days kind of listlessly undergoing spa treatments and musing with his acquaintances about loss, aging, memory, and all that kind of contemplative stuff. Here's a clip of him having a catch-up with Mick about urinating and, unrelatedly, the director's new screenplay. Did you take a piss today? Twice. Four drops. You? The same. More or less. More or less? Less. Have you heard the latest? No. 
Joyce Owens, Miss Universe, has come here to stay. Apparently, one of her prizes is a free week in our hotel. Yeah, I heard. But it seems more like a punishment than a prize to me. <laughs> How's the script coming? It's going to be masterpiece. My testament. And Brenda's going to be an unforgettable leading lady. We came upon a title today. Life's last day. What do you think? That's good. Good. So I was a bit up and down on this film. If I've been watching it with one of those audience meters from political debates, you know, where yeah. they track the reaction live and you, it spikes when someone says something good and tips when someone says something bad, my thing would have been going up and down a lot, like a heart monitor, right. I think. Maybe not quite that rapidly. It's very ruminatory, it's a little fragmented, and it's mostly these kind of quiet, reflective, wry conversations, a bit like in that clip, which captures the tone of them quite well, uh, interspersed with really beautiful shots of the resort and its residents, which feel more like tone poemy moments of um, beautiful photography. The tone swings about quite wildly between very light-hearted and quite melancholic, but overall it lies somewhere between The Lobster and a Wes Anderson film. And if that sounds attractive to you, then it makes it more likely you're going to like the movie. But I think it will still depend greatly on how interesting and insightful you find the character's musings and how emotionally invested you are in the story. And for me, it was kind of hit and miss on both those counts, but overall probably more positive and negative. Some of the jokes fall, uh, fall a bit flat and some of them are quite funny. And some of the observations that the characters make are genuinely poignant and others just aren't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I was flipping and flopping a bit. I really like Old Man Kane doing his uh, old man thing. Yeah. And his performance is really excellent in it. He's got a great rapport with Harvey Keitel, who is also very good. I haven't seen Harvey Keitel be really good in a movie for quite a long time. Um, or just be in like a film where he gets to do a lot. Yeah. You know, he's perfectly good in the Grand Budapest Hotel where he doesn't really get to exercise himself. Sure. So, so that was quite cool. But the film is shot in this kind of distancing way that makes it hard to fully invest in the characters. The way that the camera focuses on the humans at the resort is almost anthropological. It looks like he wants to take um, images from it and print them in National Geographic. Um <laughs> It's got a lot of shots of just people's bodies, you know, and the moving around, like people sitting in the spa. It's like a someone outside the human race observing them and thinking, like, aren't these people weird? Yeah, yeah. And the result is very beautiful photography, but it's slightly antiseptic and bloodless. And on a quite a sort of minor note, I like the fact that these kinds of movies will show different body types um, naked. And that's quite yeah. refreshing. But I don't think that they have to be shown as though they're sort of mesmerizing Lucian Freud grotesques. You yeah. know what I mean? When there's sure. like a shot of like an old woman naked and it's just a bit like, have you've never seen this before, have you? You know, it's so weird. Do you see, uh, do you see Marco Kane in the nude? No, which what? is a little disappointing. Oh. You, well, you see quite a lot of his body, but you don't see a nude shot. Don't see his ass? Um, his ass? I, no, I don't balls? see his ass, ass or balls. <laughs> Cock? No. <laughs> Fies? And there's a scene with um, that you might have seen on the poster. There's a poster which is Kane and Keitel staring at a nude woman. Have you seen it? Yes, I've seen it. And that felt a little bit gratuitous because I felt like it happens quite late on in the film. And by that point, it's really made its point about youthful bodies contrasting with older bodies. And you just do not need the scene with a super sexy woman stripping naked and like being really hot. 
you know, having after the film has made its point, that seems a bit gratuitous. It's right. just like it feels more pornographic than just like contemplative. And when I first started watching it, I think I was made slightly, I was slightly put off by the cinema already because I was like, uh, it's just a bit too soaked in gold for me. And I was concerned that the whole film was just going to be this tedious exercise in sad, rich people kind of wallowing in their own wrinkles and their insecurities. But every so often it would throw something up that I enjoyed or found interesting or um, found meaningful. And that kept me interested. There's a bit where Paloma Faith turns up playing herself. And then that's followed by this... Paloma Faith? (laughs) I don't really know who Paloma Faith is, to be honest. I'm too old um, and out of touch for that. But I got got the fact that she was in it playing herself and it was quite bizarre. And then there's a bit where Rachel Weisz dreams about her music video, which is really like off the wall and full of explosions and CGI car racing around. And it was totally unlike everything else in the film. And it was really refreshing. And I was like, um, you know, laughing. It was really good. So, yeah, basically a film that is about rich and successful people in an exorbitantly expensive hotel picking away their own insecurities (laughs) is just always going to be a little bit stultifying and i found that the film had to uh win me over every scene to kind of keep me going because i was always in danger of losing patience with it and it's clearly very heavily influenced by eight and a half as well which is also a film about a miserable film director wallowing in his own problems and with a lot of fantastical diversions and which is much better but i found that youth was just about like it had enough stuff in it to make it worthwhile particularly the michael kane and harvey keitel bromance which i found really entertaining and all their scenes together they, they have great chemistry and i kind of yeah. want to see them starring in like i don't know some like, odd couple cop film or something like righteous kill yeah, like Righteous Kill. But with Kane and Keitel. Yeah, you, you thought it couldn't get any better. Or like Grudge Match with Stallone and Robert De Niro. That sounds fun. Yeah, I you know. I, I, I don't not recommend it. I'm slightly warmer than lukewarm on it. I like the idea of seeing Michael Caine not just as like a five minute cameo in a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. Doing some actings. Yeah, he, yeah and he does, he does great actings. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Stop talking now. Enough about those old men. Let's talk about something relevant and important. Middle-aged men. (laughs) Um, So we both saw Spotlight. This is the new film, which is written and directed by uh, Tom McCarthy, director of The Cobbler, Mm -hmm. and also much better reviewed films, such as The Station Agent and Win-Win and The Visitor. I haven't read a single review of Spotlight that's mentioned The Cobbler. It's really funny. It's like he's managed to erase it from his record immediately. And it was also co-written by Josh Singer, who was a writer on The West Wing and also co-wrote The Fifth Estate, which was another journalist being empowering people sort of movie. So Spotlight is based on the true story of a group of journalists at the Boston Globe. So set in 2001, and it's the film, the plot catalyzes when uh, a new editor takes over the Boston Globe, an outsider called Marty Barron. He is interested in a story about a Catholic priest who's been accused of molesting a child and he assigns the story to Spotlight, which is a subdivision of the globe made up of a small team of four investigative journalists. They are played by Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, and an actor you've never heard of called Brian 
Darcy uh, James. Darcy James, who is a, apparently a very well-regarded Broadway actor, but this is one of his few film roles. And as the group start to investigate, they realize this isn't just a few isolated incidences, but a whole conspiracy and systematic cover-up of many abuses, which has taken place over decades. Uh, here is a clip of Marcy Barron, played by Lee Schreiber, telling the Spotlight team that they have to keep on digging to prove that the cover-up is systemic rather than just a few uh, bad, apples. bad apples. That's why he had the reaction. Because he knew there were others. I think that's the bigger story. The numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do, indicate. But are you telling me that, that if we run a story with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... Mike, we'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. So we both saw this. In fact, we all saw this. You saw this, Katie, didn't you, Katie? Yes. She confirms that she did see it. So I thought this was great. Me too. This loved, is, it. loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Many reasons why. I think the big reason why this film works is that creatively everybody's on the same page and the style adopted by the filmmakers and the actors is the same as the one the reporters did for the case. So it's a very honest unfussy film full of very honest unfussy performances about honest uh, professionals going about their case very uh, efficiently and uh, well, I don't know what the word is uh, goodly goodly the, yeah. goodly they're very good at their job and it's good to watch people being good at their job so the story is inherently fascinating and the performances are excellent and Tom McCarthy's direction uh, never gets in the way of this and in fact takes the opposite approach which is all you really need for a film to be good, really. And uh, there is a sort of style in its unstylishness. Yeah, the, the, unders the understatement serves the story. Absolutely. The fact that the journalists succeed is a sort of foregone conclusion because everyone knows about this uh, big scandal. And I guess it's similar to The Big Short in that respect. But it doesn't diminish the drama at all because the film isn't about shocking twists or, or revelations. It's more about everyone's dawning realisation about the scale of the scandal and there's a theme of the movie is that everyone is sort of slightly aware of it as a thing but not willing to really accept the truth of the matter it's thrilling and it's got a conspiracy element but it's not a conspiracy thriller and i think the film very judges that tone perfectly there's also something just inherently satisfying about watching smart clever people be smart and clever and do their jobs very very well yeah and a bit like the martian in that respect that was a lot of the joy of that movie as well yeah and there's also I guess this film, despite only being set 15 years ago, is a period film in that there's just a general point to be made that technology has kind of ruined certain devices in films and uh, the analogue world offers more opportunities for uh, the film to be cinematic than a digital one in that this is a film about building a story and so a lot of it is about the nuts and bolts of literally looking up data, going to libraries, digging out files... And uh, that makes for good films, I think. Um, also, if you said it much later, then the characters would probably constantly be referencing Google and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. And those, there's something irritating about having these massive corporate brands in the mouths of your film characters. And it's about as late as you can get when that isn't true. You know, yeah. Now they're so pervasive that everyone talks about them all the time. Absolutely. And there's also a sort of underlying 
theme of the movie is how this kind of investigative journalism doesn't happen anymore precisely because the digital revolution has made newspapers more competitive for commercial reasons yeah. and there aren't the resources that there used to be for these kind of stories. Yeah. Um, there's a reference at the beginning of the movie when the new editor comes in and he's saying that they're going to have to be cuts because the uh, online world is easing into their bottom line and everything. And that doesn't really affect anything else in the plot of the movie, but it just makes it clear right at the beginning. It's like this message to the audience that says, this is gone. You yeah. know, people aren't doing this now. All these guys have been fired probably. Well, <laughs> they probably haven't been, but <laughs> the equivalents don't exist anymore. And this is like the dying days of it. I think it also the film does a, a good job of uh, not dwelling on the severity of the crimes. And the film depicts these journalists dealing with this very emotive subject matter in a very professional manner to get to the heart of the story. And I feel like Tom McCarthy takes a similar approach where he doesn't dwell on the ordeals of the victims, but he doesn't underserve them. And he just trusts you, like you're all adults. You can, you don't need to see you know, some horrific crime to understand the implications. And so it does a good balance with that um, element of the story. Yeah. The, the approach is a little bit um, like a documentary in that if you watch a documentary about this sort of thing, the bits that are really emotional and powerful are the human reactions. And the there's scenes in this movie where they speak to the victims and they recount what happened to them. And I have no idea how true to life that is of um, the Boston Globe journalists meeting real victims and what they said, but it rang really true. It just seemed really authentic, which is um, one of the great strengths of the movie is that things just seem natural. And the scenes where the victims talk about what happened to them were really powerful and they were very emotional. Yeah. And you also see the toll it takes on the journalists as the film goes on. Um, and they, you know, because they start out and it's a professional interest and then it becomes a personal interest to them. And that, means that you're emotionally invested in the movie even though you don't have to you know there's no bit where a priest like takes a choir boy aside or anything yeah absolutely yeah the performances are excellent across the board they're all brilliant and all underplaying it. it's not there's no showboating mark ruffalo is the only one who's been singing out for an oscar nomination it seems purely because he has the most oscar friendly clip to show yeah because he gets a speech where sort of his emotions gets the better of him but that's not really it that's, that would be singled out as an awardsy moment, but the reason that works is because the film is so thorough in depicting everything that's led up to that moment that it completely earns it. Yeah, and it's the only it's, it's the only bit in the film where his professional demeanor drops slightly, and so I was like fully on board with it. Yeah, that's what makes it's what it so powerful. It's a shame because Lee Schreiber or Rachel McAdams or Michael Keaton or Brian James Darcy are equally brilliant, but. It's like the sort of acting that gets underappreciated. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading other reviews of this film and it's been praised across the board, really. The only sort of common complaint is that people have complained as unstylish or a bit televisual. But I think I would uh, argue that that perfectly suits the subject matter and the tone of the movie because one of the things the movie um, expresses is how this has become commonplace and the cover-up and child abuse has been accepted somewhat by society, even if it hasn't been acknowledged. And so to put it in visual terms in a sort of conspiracy theory would be to cheapen it, I think. And it's, it's good that it seems like every day because that's kind of the point. So if it was like, you know, shadows and chiaroscuro and, you know, dramatic lighting, that wouldn't really be in tone with the actual story. So I think it's a strong directorial yeah, I think that's oh, a God. I think that's a really good point because then you'd feel like you're watching something crazy out of this world. You know, you know, mm. you're real immersed in a movie. Doesn't seem like real life. 
Yeah. I think it will live on. I think it's great. If it wins best pick, then fair play to it. I'd be, may- I'd be maybe out of the nominees, I'd be happy to see George Miller win best director for Mad Max Fury Road and this win best picture. Yeah. I think it's an adult film for adults. I'm an adult. I'm an adult too. You're an adult. Yeah. You're all adults, aren't you listening? I think most of our listeners are of age. Go see it, fellow adults. <laughs> oh, my lad, oh, my lad, wish the Alfie was my dad. Tiny hair, fancy watch, brain located in my crotch. I'm a bloke, I'm a bloke, till I roll except his chokes. Like my lager, extra strength, keep my cubes a perfect length. So I found out something interesting today about youth. It was adapted into novelization, which is very common for various movies, maybe a bit less so for these sort of art house affairs. But unusually, even for blockbusters, the novelization was written by the director himself, Paolo Sorrentino, who moonlights as an author, apparently. And it got quite a negative review in The Independent. (laughs) And I'm I'm kind of not surprised because it's a very visual film and um, it's obviously going to be less interesting to just read, like, you know, and then they scraped mud all over Michael Caine's leg or something, you know as opposed to seeing that shot beautifully composed. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned to me uh, another another sort of example of this, which is Ryan Johnson, who like, had a novella um, of Brick and then adapted that into a movie. But yeah, this is concurrent. You can buy it if you want. And he's also doing, um, to slip into stuff I'm making up, an audiobook version of wow. Youth, which is pretty exciting, which he's reading himself. Fantastic. And which is, it's a little more florid maybe than either the novel or the movie. And we have an exclusive clip from it, which Brilliant. we're going to leave you with to play us out. So see you next week. We'll be reviewing what's coming out. I don't even know. Oh, I, don't even know mate. I don't know. What are we going to see? Some old men movies. I'm Deadpool. Seeing... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, we don't know what we're going to see. We're going to see some films. It's going to be good. It's going to be great. And um, yeah, have a great week. You, you have a great week, listeners. I was talking to you, Danny. You have a great week as well, Sam. Let's okay. all have a great week. All right. Yay. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> this is Audible. Chapter 14. The two old men felt their creaking hearts lurch as Miss Universe disrobed and stepped into the water. Ripples lapped against the tufts of stiff air sprouting from their knuckles, elbows, and chests. Do you see this woman? Fred Bollinger asked his wizened companion. Yes, said Mick Boyle. She garlands this tranquil pool like a burst of bougainvillea, bare as the infant Christ in the Madonna's arms. Truly, said Fred Bollinger. Before her, Giorgione's La Venere Dormiente is but the lustful scroll of a drunken vignettista. Particularly inspiring are her breasts and nipples. Mick Boyle coughed feebly. <coughs> Dust fell out of his mouth. Maestro, her breasts are as sublime as the dome of the Cattedrale di Santa Maria del Fiore. But her buttocks, Bernini could not shape such wonders. I like her buttocks as well, said Fred Bollinger, his liver spots gleaming. Her buttocks are fantastic. Mick Boyle reclined further until his face was submerged and blew tiny bubbles. Spring? Is that you? 
Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 